And welcome back to one of our final Sundays. Uh, you probably realize that the semester is wrapping up, and I have to say that I'm incredibly excited about that, not just for the like tiredness sake, but also because uh, the end of semesters are when people really just kind of go insane, uh, and I love seeing that every single year, uh, because at the end of the semester, any semester, people always just go a little bit crazy, right? Like everyone. Like I know that you probably have that roommate. I always had that roommate or that friend who at this point of the semester, or like a week and a half from finals, uh, who are like maybe you have a friend that you haven't seen in four days because they're like living in Evans, right? And they've like built a small fort or clubhouse in like one of those cubicles or they like took over a study room. They like blocked it all off with foil so no one can get in and they're like scavenging for, I don't know, trail mix and Red Bull, I don't know. But like they, you haven't seen them in a while, right? Because they've just hold themselves away. Or maybe you have that roommate. I always had that one friend who uh, basically just got to go home like two weeks ago, right? Because they're like an RPTS or whatever. And so like they have nothing to do. And so they're just like, ah, whatever. I'll just go home for three months instead of one, you know? So they are gone, right? You're not going to see them until like February because that's when their classes start. So they're just kind of... They're kind of done, right? They're done for the whole semester. Or maybe you've always got that friend. I always had that one roommate who would just kind of be in denial, like right up until like the very last moment. Uh, so you have maybe the roommate that's sitting on your couch like right now, watching like all of the Sherlock episodes on Netflix, like for the third time, because uh, they don't really know what's going on. Or like they've just kind of shut out the world. They have like seven projects and five tests next week, but you ask them about them, they're like, <laughs> what? Whatever, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's okay. Right, they just kind of in this weird, like, just block themselves off from the world. They're, they're in denial. And then one of the things that I love uh, is, in fact, I had a guy in my life who, I don't know where he is now. I hope somewhere awesome. Uh, because his name was Sean, and he just brought so much joy into my life because he was probably uh, just the king of doing insane things at the end of semesters. Uh, because Sean basically lived every day of his life like he had nothing to lose, right? He's like that rebel without a cause, like Bruce Willis and Die Hard kind of mentality, uh, except he had hair. And he, uh, but he was so great because he lived just like reckless, just reckless abandon, just constantly, uh, which was generally turned out really poorly for him, uh, but it was hilarious for us. So it was like, it bounced out. And we loved Sean because in our eighth grade year, right, very end of junior high, Sean told us, like the week that class was over, he told us, hey, you know what, on the very last day, in our very last class, which was science, he says, I'm going to go to the back of our classroom. I'm going to pull the emergency shower chain, right? Because every science classroom, you probably see them in your labs this year, you know, as your time at A&M. Uh, but every science classroom had one of those emergency showers. It was like a, you know, just a normal looking shower, but this like chain hanging from it. And if you pulled that chain it would immediately dump out like 700 gallons of water, like something insane where it's like you could be on fire and like covered in uranium. And if you just stand underneath and pull that chain though, like you're good, like everything's gone. And so we always looked at it and we'd always like heard about it. We'd take quizzes on like lab safety and it was just this like this thing that was back there that we're like, oh man, if only we could see it get pulled one day. And so Sean wanted to make that dream come true. He was like, you know, I'm going to do it. Very last day, as soon as the bell rings, I'm going to go back pull it. And we were really worried for him, right? Because we're like, Sean, I don't know. That's the best like life decision you can make right now. You know, like you might get in trouble. You probably will get in trouble, Sean, right? And you're, 
I don't know if they send you to prison. I don't think you're going to make it because you're a little too crazy for prison, Sean. Like you're all across that threshold of prison craziness. And so we don't think you should do this, right? And we try to talk them out of it. We're like, look, we admire the fact that you're a dreamer, but please, Sean, like don't do this. But he said, no, I must. So sure enough, that last day, bell rang. Eighth grade is over. Our time at junior high is over. Sean calmly just stands up and turned and walked to the back of our classroom. Reached up, grabbed that little triangle chain, and just yanked it with just all, all the strength in his body. And water. It was so amazing. Just, just, I don't know if you've seen, like, it's really like 70 gallons. Or something insane. Like, it just all poured out at once. It was amazing. Just water goes everywhere. Like, the whole classroom started to, like, flood. And we were so excited because Sean, not only did he just pull that, but then immediately he just, like, took off. Uh, and he ran out this, like, back door in our classroom, like, to the, that led to, the, like, the outside. Uh, I think he, like, left his backpack, like, never came back. Just, like, ran. Just out that door. And it was an amazing moment because when we saw Sean do that, man, when you walked back, he pulled that chain as just, you know, a simple, just a man. Just a, just a normal person. But, man, when he ran out that door, he was a living legend, you know? Like, he became something greater than what we ever thought possible. And we, to the, you know, forever, for the rest of our time together, uh, all through high school, man, we would always remember, like, oh, man, remember when Sean, like, oh, what a guy, right? Like, it was just this amazing memory that we all shared because Sean realized something that we didn't get. He had this knowledge of our future that we didn't quite understand because Sean knew that at the end of the, la- you know, the, end of the last day of May, the very end of the year, he realized that our teachers they just didn't care anymore. They didn't care. They didn't care enough to chase him down. Like he realized they weren't going to care enough to get him in trouble, right? They were just going to be like, you're a high school's problem now. You know, like he knew that they would have the mentality. And so because of that, because of that knowledge, because of that hope he had in the future, he lived very differently from the rest of us, right? He lived in such a way that it set him apart. He lived in such a way that it made an impact on our lives, And the reality is that we as believers have an incredible hope. We have an incredible knowledge of our future. If I'm a believer, if I'm a Christian, by definition, that means that I recognize that this world is broken. I recognize that there is sin and death and suffering in this world. And it's because of my choices. It's because of humanity's actions. I realize that. But I also realize that despite the fact that we have broken this world, that we have destroyed the universe that we live in, I realize that our God who made it all loved me so much that he died for me. That Jesus Christ, God himself, became, took on flesh to live a perfect life, to die the death that I deserve. So that if I only put my faith in his death and resurrection, suddenly I have salvation. Suddenly I have a new life available to me. Suddenly I have a place where I will go for all of eternity after this world passes away. That's a hope. That's a knowledge of my future that's so incredible that it should change the way that I live. If I've put my faith in Christ, if I become a Christian, I'm no longer just a simple man. You are no longer a simple Woman, you are now the adopted son or daughter of the Lord Almighty, saved by his son, indwelt by his spirit. 
We have an incredible hope. And God has put that shower chain right in front of us. And he's telling us we've got to pull it. All semester we've been talking about how do we react to our culture? How do we live in this world? What am I called to do as a Christian? How do I engage with the people, with the society around me? And we've talked about this one kind of core pillar that we are supposed to walk into this world equipped with God's grace, with God's Bible, and with God's church. In other words, his, his love, his word, and his people. And when I bring all those pieces together, when I make those integral elements of my life, I'm then empowered to go out and change the world. To create and cultivate something new. Empowered by his spirit. That chain is hanging right there. And all semester we've been talking about how do we pull it? How do we go up? How do we yank that chain? How do we bring that water down? How do we change this world? Because the reality is that even though I have this hope, even though I realize that that I have this God who loves me, even though I realize that I have this future life ahead of me, that this world is not my end, the sad reality is that our world that we live in does not have that hope. The people around me do not have that hope. Instead, when we look into our world, we realize that their hope is placed entirely in this world. That our world's hope, it ends with the last beat of their heart. With the last breath in their lungs. That's it. Our world is hopeless. So how do we bring hope to those people? How do we bring hope to the hopeless around us? What do we do? When we realize how lost our world is, we see a need, but how do we address it? Right? We see hopelessness all over. We just look at our stories. Right? You look at our world, you look at our society, at our culture, you look at the stories that we tell, and when you realize, if you look at it with the right perspective, you realize that our society is obsessed with hopelessness. You look at the top-rated uh, like shows, uh, movies, books, right? Our stories, the, the legends that we tell one another, that we sit around and watch or read. And they're obsessed with hopelessness. One of the biggest movies this year so far was uh, Gravity. I don't know if you saw it. It was awesome. Okay, but it's all this, it's a movie about hopelessness. It's a movie about this woman who gets placed in the situation that looks like she's doomed, right? That she's going to perish, and she's bouncing around from space station to space station. And she's got these like things. And George Clooney's there. And you're like, oh, George. And you love him. And I don't want to mess any, you know, spoil anything. But when the aliens abduct him at the end, you're like, that's so crazy. Uh, but there's like this hopelessness in that situation. Right? And you see that. You should really see it. Right? But you see this hopeless situation. And you realize, wow. But we love it. Right? Critics, oh my gosh, loved that movie. People loved that movie. It just made like over half a billion dollars like a week ago. It crossed that threshold. You look at our top rated shows. At our televisions. You see that the, one of the top rated shows like ever just ended like a couple months ago called Breaking Bad. Right? Where you see this guy. And not to give anything away, but you see this guy who's just like trapped in this hopeless situation. And you just, the whole show, all six or five or six seasons, five seasons, it's him just like slowly, like falling like deeper and deeper and deeper into hopelessness. That's the whole show. And people love it. 
It just resonates with us. People just, they see and it's like, they just, they just are, grab a hold of it and they love it. And it's really crazy. Again, not to give anything away, but when, those, when the aliens abduct him too, like you're like, what? Like that's, that's nuts. But uh, you just get so excited to see this man in this hopeless situation, seeing what does he do with what he's presented with? Because the reality is that we are obsessed with hopelessness. Because we realize deep down when we look at our world that we are in fact hopeless. Our culture deep down realizes that there is no hope. That if this world is all there is, then oh my gosh, that is incredibly depressing. So our stories revolve around this idea of hopelessness. Our actions revolve around the idea of hopelessness. You look at our governments and at our leaders and, and the people that are important that we've lifted up. And, and their whole role is to address hopeless situations. You see our, our leaders trying to heal and, and bring safety to our world in, in the midst of incredible disease and, and danger and death. And it looks like a hopeless battle because it is. We can never legislate away death. We can never pass programs or other pieces that will get rid of disease. As soon as we solve one thing, then another one pops up. As soon as we solve certain epidemics, then we have suddenly old epidemics that are popping up again. We have these old diseases. We have cancer that's killing so many people. That most of us have had someone in our lives deeply affected by disease because this world is hopeless which is why it's so incredible that Peter told us in what Sarah read just a few minutes ago when we realize that we have a God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ that according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. We see that God, according to his great mercy, a phrase that we see repeatedly in the New Testament, always refers to the exact same scenario. It always refers to the idea that God gave us unmerited favor, meaning we did nothing to deserve his favor, but he gave it to us. He gave it to sinners in a hopeless condition. We see that according to his great mercy, he made this living hope available to us. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter's showing us how amazing this is, that we have this hope. He uses poetic language. Uh, In English, it doesn't look that cool. It's just imperishable, undefiled, unfading. But if you look in in original Greek, he's using alliteration. Like He's using these uh, repeated uh, words and sounds. Uh, he uses uh, aftharth. Wait, sorry. I'm going to have to look at this one. <laughs> aftharton, okay? Aftartone. Aftartone. He uses this word that it means uh, perish. It won't perish. Then he talks about amiantone. He talks about amarantone. He uses these words that they build and build on one another. That if you're reading it, you're like, wow, like that's incredible. That we do, in fact, have a hope that is sure and, and certain and real. Because when we look at our world, it's a false hope that we're being presented with. 
We've seen in our lives or in our family or in our friends, when we place our hope in things of this world, when I put my hope in a job or I put my hope in an internship or I put my hope in a relationship or I put my hope in my savings account, we have seen where people place their hope in these things and then these things end. That marriage shatters. That savings account goes dry. That job ends. And suddenly, I'm left lost because my hope was in something that was not worthy of my hope. Therefore, when it is gone, I'm I'm lost and I'm confused. I'm hurt. But Peter tells us, no, Christians, you have a much better hope that is certain, that is sure, that is secure, a living hope. And if we have this hope, We've got to share it. If we look out into our world and we see hopelessness, then how do we bring our hope to bear? How do we enter into this world that's so lost and confused and broken? What do we do? I'll tell you one of the things that we don't do is disengage. Sadly, for whatever reason, in our current culture, our current Christian culture, it's very popular to just kind of step back to see the hopelessness to see the brokenness and decide, you know what? I don't want to handle that right now. I'm not going to deal with it. Right now, I don't know if you're aware, but we are in the midst of breakup season, right? That's what I always call the end of every semester, breakup season. Why? Because there are relationships around you. Maybe you've already seen it. Maybe you're in one. I don't know. Where there's a lot of breakups right now, right? Why? Because people look at the break that's ahead of us where they see the you know, winter break and they're like, well, we're going to be apart for five weeks. Skype just doesn't cut it, right? So you decide, well, maybe we just end things, right? I've seen it time and time again where you look and you realize, well, things are about to get really hard. We just started dating like a week ago, so maybe we'll just call it quits, right? Or maybe relationships don't even start. They just like break up before they even break in. I don't know what that is, but they, before they even start, they break up because they're like, well, there's this time coming up or, you know, or the summer's coming up because they realize, well, you know, we're about to have to jump out of the nest and I don't know if our relationship wings are ready to fly. So let's just, let's just cut this right now, right? Let's just end it. And we see this, and maybe you're sitting next to your, you know, significant other and you're like, no, no, but you know, maybe you will. So we'll see. Well, I don't know. We'll see. But <laughs> The reality is that, man, we are in the midst of this season where people, they look and they see this hopelessness, right? They see this difficulty, not hopelessness, but they see this difficulty. And our instinctive reaction as people is to see that pain and that suffering and that potential for disaster. And a lot of times we just like, well, I'm just going to step back and not mess with that thing, right? Like, let's just, let's just end things. Let's just go to mug walls and be done with it. You know, like, let's, let's just have this be done. Because we want to just disengage. We want to distance ourselves from that. And as Christians, sadly, we have done this with our world, with our culture. We look out and we see these pieces and we see that group and we see that uh, activity and we see those people and we're like, oh, I don't want to, let's just step back. Let's just leave that up to like, let's just like pray for them or like have missionaries go. And I don't know, like we, we pull back, we disengage and that is so wrong. Because when we look in scripture, when we see our God who saved us, when we see the way that he acted, the way that he moved, when he saw the hopelessness of our world, 
classic verse, John 3.16, tells us that he saw the world and he loved it so much that he sent his son to die for it. God loved our world so much that he fought for it. Even though he saw the pain and the destruction and the hopelessness, he loved it. Therefore, he fought for it. If my loved one is dying, I fight for it. If I see that pain, that suffering, I don't sit back and just like, oh, I don't want. I, I move and I do everything in my power to save it. If my God who created me, who loves me, my father loves this world, loves the people around me, therefore I should love them. I should love this world and I should do everything in my power to bring hope to this hopelessness. So please do not disengage. That's why all semester we've been talking about this idea of creating and cultivating. It's this idea of moving into that situation, of bringing to bear what God has given us. It's the opposite of disengaging. It's going into the thick of it and seeing parts of our culture that need to change. And we realize that the only way to change that culture is to, in fact, create new culture. I've said that literally every week. One of my doulas leaders a week ago, like, finally caught on to it. He came up to me on, like, Tuesday and was like, hey, I think you've been saying, like, the same phrase a lot all semester. Is that subliminal messaging? I was like, no, it's very liminal, or I don't know if that's correct, but I was like, no, it's not subliminal. Like, I'm not trying to sneak it into your brain. I'm trying to be overt. Like, I'm trying to be very clear. Like, do, please do this, right? Like, I'm putting it out on a platter, shining a spotlight on it, like, banging your head into it, trying to get you to see that we are called to live in this way. We are called to create and cultivate. We're called to move into our culture and change things. And what Peter tells us is that the best way to do that, the best way to bring hope into this hopelessness is to, in fact, live a life that is holy. To be holy. Not saying we're prideful, right? That's got a lot of baggage. That word has a lot of baggage and weird negative connotations. But the reality is that holy, what that means on the most basic level, its original definition, holy just means set apart, just means different. Peter tells us repeatedly, we are called to be holy. We're called to be set apart and different. Because the reality is that when we look out into our culture, nothing is holy. There is no thing that is holy. There is no thing that is different. When we look into our culture, we realize that nothing is off limits. We see a culture that thrives on like mocking things and making fun of stuff. And a lot of times, man, that, that's great. Like I'm, dark humor, I think sometimes is great. I'm all for it. I, maybe it's just, I'm twisted like that, but I don't know. But sometimes it's hilarious. Uh, I came across this letter. Okay. It's just like this essay and you might try to, don't try to read it. It's going to be really blurry. I'll just read it for you. But it's this essay that popped up. Basically the prompt for these students was, what would you do if you had a billion dollars, right? A billion dollars. So the student, I don't know too much of the background, if the kid's like junior high or below or what. Handwriting seems like he's kind of younger. Um, but hopefully. <laughs> but what would you do if you had a billion dollars, right? This is what the kid said. <laughs> he said, if I had one billion dollars, I would make an orphan believe he was going to Hogwarts to learn magic. 
I would pay actors to pretend to be wizards and have a fake Hagrid take him shopping at a pretend Diagon Alley. I would plan elaborate magic illusions to convince him he really was a wizard. Finally, I would convince him to run at the wall to get to platform nine and three quarters. As soon as his head hit the wall, balloons would fall from the sky and a giant banner would fall down and read, magic isn't real. (laughs) Right, which, I mean, it's terrible, but he's not really going to do it, so no biggie. But we see our culture, man, and we see things like this. And it circulates through like, oh man, it's awesome, right? Because we live in a culture that thrives on mocking and just kind of this weird like dark humor where we just kind of make fun of things because nothing is off limits. Because when we look at our culture, we see a world, a culture that has said, you know what? Everything's special. Everyone is so special. Everyone's just the best little snowflake. And by golly, you're the best snowflake that's ever been. And every single decision you make is awesome. And every single way, you know, path you could take is awesome. Every single like train of thought you could follow is awesome. Therefore, when we say that, when we believe that, when we convince ourselves that everything is awesome and special, suddenly we find ourselves where nothing is awesome and nothing is special. If everything is special, nothing is special. Therefore, when we look out into our culture, we realize there's nothing that is holy. There's nothing that is set apart. There's nothing that is off limits. We see a culture that really revolves around nothing. Just whatever flares up at that time. That's why we look and we see just like a few days ago, some dude made this like internet browser based game uh, about the Sandy Hook shootings where you're like the shooter and you like go and you like just shoot a bunch of kids and you like gather supplies and all this crazy stuff. Sick. And people are frustrated, right? Two of the four websites that were hosting it took it down, which means two of them didn't. And people are mad. They were mad yesterday. They were probably mad today. And there might be some outrage or some blowback, you know, for like a week. But then the reality is that People move on. They won't care. Because nothing's holy. Nothing's set apart. Nothing's off limits. Our culture looks at these pieces and they don't care. So if we as believers are set apart, if we we as believers say, no, like this is holy, this is worth pursuing. No, no, this... This belief, this is special. This is different. If we live our lives in such a way that we are set apart and different, that's amazing. And that displays to our world that something's going on. That's why Peter tells us that we should be preparing our minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter is laying out this idea that, look, we are bringing hope to our world through our holiness. 
He's saying one of the ways that you're going to, the best way, you're going to communicate the hope that you have in Christ is to live in such a way that people notice. And he says that way requires three fundamental building blocks. He, he says them right here at the beginning in verse 13. He says, first, you've got to prepare your mind for action. In other words, he's saying you need this, this discipline, right? This obedience that you've practiced where you're ready for action, even when the action isn't called for, right? You start when action isn't needed, you build in this discipline. When you get in your car, you put your seatbelt on when you're still like in your driveway, right? Or when you're still in the parking lot. You don't wait to get into the middle of an intersection and have a truck coming at you and then try to put your seatbelt on, right? That's not, that will go poorly for you, I promise. You put your seatbelt on when things are safe and secure, you build this discipline when you don't need the action. He says that not only that, but you are being sober-minded. Literally saying you're sober in the sense that you are being driven from within. Right? You're not being swayed by outside circumstances. Instead, you have this inward drive from the Holy Spirit. There is this book series and movie series that many of you have probably seen or read called The Lord of the Rings. And the Lord of the Rings is all about uh, this, like, ring, okay? And this, like, little guy named Frodo, and he's a hobbit, and so he's got really hairy feet, and he's really whiny, and he takes this ring, and his job is to take this ring, go throw it into a volcano, okay? That's the whole premise, the entire thing. And I know there's other stuff on the side, but whatever. So he's got this ring, okay? And so there's this moment in Lord of the Rings where he's sitting, and he's talking uh, with the big wizard guy, his name is Gandalf. And they're sitting there and they're just kind of chatting because that's most of the book is just talking. And so they're sitting there and talking to one another, waiting for this door to open. They can't figure it out. And so they're sitting there and they're talking back and forth. And Frodo's basically complaining. Okay, he's like, oh, this is, oh, shucks, Gandalf. Like, everything's so hard. And, oh, man, because that's just what Frodo does. He just complains. I don't know why. I don't know why he's the hero. So he says, okay, I'm just going to read this quote. He says to Gandalf, he says, I wish... It need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. Okay, basically he's just saying, oh, all these bad things have happened to me. I wish it hadn't happened to me in my time. Well, okay, so then Gandalf says, so do I, said Gandalf. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. Hmm. Right? And some of you are like mouthing it along with me, like, yes, like, so true, Gandalf. I will look for you on the hill with the sunrise thing, right? Whatever. So we see this idea. What we see is basically Tolkien, right? The author who was a Christian, he's telling us, look, the reality is that you can't control these outside circumstances. You can't control the scenarios that you will find yourself in. He says the only thing that you can control is how do you respond to those circumstances? How do you react to the things that happen in your life? That's what you control. And Peter is telling us, make sure you're being led by the Holy Spirit. Make sure that you're set inwardly. You're being sober. You're not allowing these outside things to change you or sway you or push you one way or the other. You choose what to do with the time that you've been given. And when you do that, you'll be different. You'll be set apart. You'll be holy. People will notice that in you. But he says it's not just this determination, it's not just, or it's not just this discipline, it's not just this drive, it's also a determination. He's saying you are setting your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's saying you're fully investing yourself, you're all in on this hope. 
realizing that there's going to be pain and realizing that this world is going to hurt you, but realizing that your hope is not in this world, that's in Christ, it's in heaven, it's in Christ alone. We do this in relationships, right? Whenever you're dating someone, you invest, right? You engage with that person. You try to learn about them and serve them and talk with them and you get to know each other and you're like, oh, this is awesome, right? And you have that thing going on, but you don't put your hope fully in that relationship because that's really dangerous, right? Because if you do that, man, you're in a, for a world of hurt because that relationship could end. And when that relationship possibly ends, you're gonna be shattered because all of your hope, all of your identity was in it. You've probably seen people do that. You perhaps have fallen into that trap. Let me tell you, it's, it's more than just dating. Even as a married man, my wife and I have been married for about four years. And let me just promise you right now, her hope is not in me. My hope is not in her. Susan does not put her identity or her self-worth or her hope in our relationship. Because the truth is that I am a flawed, broken human being who will do so many things that are wrong. It's incredible, right? In four years of marriage, I've, I've done so many things that are so wrong. Like it's, it's mind-boggling how many wrong things I've done and how many different things I've done that could have hurt her, that hurt her, right? It doesn't matter how many times we just gaze in each other's eyes and run through meadows with Celine Dion playing in the background, right? It doesn't matter. We can have those moments. We can have that relationship and we have that. Maybe not Celine Dion, but we run through meadows, I guess, but... We have those pieces, right? We have an incredible relationship, but we do not put our hope in the other person because that person is not worthy of my hope. No one, nothing is worthy of that hope on this earth, your husband or your wife included. The only place where you can securely place your hope is in Jesus Christ in that promised salvation, in the God who loves you, cares for you, saved you. That's where my hope has to lie. I still engage with this world. I still relate. I try to know people and love people and serve people. But I don't put my hope in them. I don't put my hope, my identity, my self-worth. Because like we said 20 minutes ago, those things will fail. That job will end, that marriage will end, that relationship shatters, that bank account goes away. The only lasting peace that I can put my hope in is Jesus Christ. And if I do that, if I have that preparation, if I have that discipline, if I have this drive, if I have that determination, Peter is telling us that is what makes you holy. That's what will set you apart. That's why he goes on and on in this book in 1 Peter where he talks about this holiness. He says, we need to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. He's saying, when you live this holy life, people are going to notice it. It's not going to give them room to attack you. Instead, they're going to see you. They're going to be like, whoa, what? I don't know what to do with you. And their only option is to then glorify God. Like, well, I guess that's because you're a Christian. That's why he keeps going and he says, you need to suffer for righteousness sake. You will be blessed if you do. He says, no, have no fear of them being people that persecute you. Do not be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense 
to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Saying, live your life in a holy way that is set apart. And when they ask you about it, then you get to explain this hope. He says, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Peter's pointing out, we need to realize that the reason that this world doesn't have anything that is holy, the reason that nothing is set apart is because our world has no hope. That hopelessness leads to the fact that there is nothing holy. The fact that our world looks at what they have and they're like, well, this is it. The fact that we live in an age where YOLO existed, which makes me so sad, so deep down in my heart. I think it's dead now, okay? That's the only, it's the only thing that gives me hope now, right? But YOLO, I think, is fully dead. If not, let's kill it tonight. But YOLO is pretty much dead, right? That hashtag is gone. You will be mocked for using it, hopefully. And that idea, though, is still with us. That idea has always been connected to humankind. This idea that this world is all I have, therefore I got to live it up. Therefore, nothing is off limits. Therefore, how dare you tell me not to do something? If this is all I have, I've got to live life to its fullest. So how dare you tell me that I can't do something? How dare you tell me that that way of thinking is wrong? How could you possibly tell me that I'm not allowed to do this or do that? How dare you limit me? Because this world is all I have. That's why nothing is holy. Because there is no hope. Therefore, Peter tells us, the Christian can enter into that environment. And if they are holy, it brings the hope. He says, when you live in this way, even though you might be persecuted, people are going to notice and they're going to ask you, what is wrong with you? Why are you living in this way? I just had dinner with this guy who's deep, big in the art world. Okay, just does like modern art. And I don't get it. Whatever. Like he, one of his big uh, mo- like sculptures is he has three tires that he stacks and he leans one against it and he painted it like a donut. That's it. And people love, it's in museums and like, New York. It's crazy. I don't understand it. But he has it. Right? And what's amazing though is that he's created this art. He paints mainly. He doesn't even do a lot of sculptures, but he paints. He has all these works that he does in the front stores of like in Manhattan and Neiman Marcus and all these cool things that he's doing. And he went and did a TED talk recently and he gets to have all these cool opportunities. And he's a believer. And he doesn't make just the explicit, uh, you know, like all everything's a cross or a dove. Instead, he just makes incredibly cool art. And he says that conversations arise out of that daily where people ask him, man, what is up with you? You're different. And he gets to have conversations. And he hasn't led anyone to Christ. It's not like they're like, tell me how to receive eternal life through Jesus Christ, your savior. Like that's never happened. But he was saying, he told me just tonight, he just had a conversation a few days ago with this guy who after like, 30 years of being a just staunch atheist, trying to disprove God regularly. 30 years of it. He had a conversation with this buddy of mine and he told him, you know what? I guess there's probably something out there. He says, I'm willing to admit there's something. He's like, I'm not saying it's the Christian God or it's Shiva or Buddha. And I don't know what it is. But I think there's something. Because there's no other way I can explain your life. So there's no other way I can explain your prayers. 
Because if we live in a way that is holy and set apart and different, people will notice and they will ask us, what is going on with you? And we can then tell them about the hope that we have. So I would just challenge you. As we enter a break, as we step away, please take these ideas that we've been talking about all semester. Take this idea of culture. Take this idea of whether it was, you know, art or government or technology or or sex or marriage, whatever. Take these ideas, wrestle with them. Think about where can I focus my attention? Where, Where is God calling me? Where can I live a life that is holy and set apart? Ask yourself, where has God given me an opportunity to share this hope with others? Because imagine if the, all of us, imagine if believers could live in such a way that people look at our lives, that they feel convicted, but not condemned. What if we all lived in a way that people were forced to see the difference in us? What if we lived in a way that we were not afraid to share that hope with our family or our friends or our coworkers? If we had no fear of them, if we shared that hope freely? What if we lived in such a way that we were creating and cultivating a new culture that was attractive, that people would look at and want to be a part of? What if we did that? So this break, take a time. When you're sitting, you know, whatever, driving home and you have all that time in the car, you're sitting at home and they're asking you like, why don't you have a girlfriend? Like, just take a moment, like zone out and think about Where has God equipped you? Where is the Spirit leading you? Where is that drive taking you? Ask yourself, where are you gifted? And what gifts do I have? How has God equipped me to go into this world and engage with it? Do I love teaching? Do I love listening to people? Do I love, uh, you know, organizing people? Do I love uh, starting organizations? What do I love? What am I gifted at? Where has God given me experience what, do, what have I already done? What organizations am I already a part of? What ways have I already served God's people? Ask yourself, where are you passionate? What are the things that just get me excited? What could I just do all day, every day? What am I passionate and driven about? And when you think of those pieces, when you have those lined up, when you know you're gifting, if you don't, email me. I will send you links to spiritual gift tests that you can get a good line on it. But what are you, when you figure out where are you gifted, when you think about what experiences do you have, when you think about what am I really passionate about, when you have those lined up, when you have those identified, then you look at the opportunities in your life and you see how God is moving you. Because you're probably not going to have God just like lift your ear and say, go be an accountant in Austin. Like, that's probably not going to happen. Maybe, that'd be awesome. But maybe not. Maybe instead you figure out these giftings, you figure out these pieces, and then you look, and when opportunities present themselves, you take that as a sign to move forward. So this break, please, take a moment. Think about those pieces. Think about where you're aligned. Think about where has God equipped you to go? Where will God be giving you opportunities to go and create a new culture? To be holy, to be set apart, to be different. It could be in an organization of 100 people. It could just be with your lab group of four. Where is God calling you?
all of us, all of us have an opportunity. All of us have a realm that God is pushing us towards. We just have to look and listen and be led. So let me pray. Lord, we thank you again that you are holy. God, we thank you that you have placed your spirit within us that allows us to be holy. That God, you have empowered us to live in such a way that we have love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness. God, we thank you that your spirit gives us those, that fruit. That God, that, that your spirit brings those pieces to bear in our lives. God, we ask that we would simply let that happen. That God, we would bring those gifts to bear. That God, the people would see us, that they would notice that something is different. That God, as they, soon as they notice the holiness in our lives, that God, we would share with them the hope that brought about those pieces. So if you would just take a moment right now, ask the Lord, where is he calling you? Ask yourself, how has he gifted you? What has he made you passionate about? Where is he pushing you and driving you to go and create something new? Where has he called you to be holy so that you might share the hope that is within you?